Good afternoon. Wow. A lot more people here than a couple months ago when everybody left on the same Sunday <laughs> for vacation. Oh. If you would, uh, you can turn to page four in your bulletin for the sermon text or if you have your Bibles. And if you're, if you're able to stand, uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. And this is the reading of God's word. Let us receive it as such. You may be seated. <clears throat> Today's text would be easy, except for how simple it sounds. Uh, if you weren't thinking about how clear and, and its clarity, we, we might not have any trouble understanding it. You can, there's some kind of contradiction in what I'm saying, but it should catch your attention to, that there's something else uh, going on. Uh, I'm not actually contradicting myself in, in what, the way I mean it. I mean that it comes off so clear and so simple sometimes without a further explanation we can actually fit, force fit lots of different kinds of meanings into words like law of Christ or other kinds of uh, expressions that you are familiar with that get mistreated all the time. For example, Don just a little while ago talked about the judge not. Uh, we force fit various meanings into words that sometimes are perfectly good meanings for those words. And yet, we get ourselves into trouble that way. We start getting trapped by our own words. Well, it ought not to be that way. Uh, when Paul says, you who are spiritual, we might start thinking, I'm you know, super spiritual, and they're just low-level spiritual, and we start ranking five, six, seven different kinds of ranks for who is the most spiritual among us. And we sound a lot more like the disciples then, when they're fighting over who's the greatest, which uh, Jesus didn't have very much patience for. So we ought not to think that Paul means something like the disciples meant when they were arguing in a way that Jesus disagreed with. So this, this seemingly simple scripture, we ought to tiptoe very carefully through and try to come up with the straightforward meaning without stepping all over ourselves without causing a, a, a further problem. Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians to solve a particular problem. Uh, especially, we want to know how today's text fits with Galatians 1 through 4, and even Galatians 5, especially uh, with the justification by faith alone being among his foremost thoughts as he wrote this. It's not by works that we're justified, it's by faith alone. So how does suddenly a law of Christ fit into all of this? Uh, 
It sounds like he might be contradicting himself if we force fit the wrong meanings into this. And he begins with burden and he ends with load. Everyone share a burden, but you bear your own load. Why is he contradicting himself there? Maybe he's trying to get our attention. I think that's exactly what he's doing. Uh, throughout this epistle, Paul has a problem. Uh, has the problem with the Galatians been, this is a question to you, has the problem been that they've been following the wrong law? No, it's, it's by faith that we are saved, and it's not by the law that we are justified. So it's not that he's replacing one law with another. Uh, if not, then what is this law of Christ? Uh, what happened to grace by faith alone? Paul even seems to contradict himself with this burden thing. So we have these two contradictions, and I hope to sort those out. Why does he do this? What does he mean? Today's sermon title is our framework for answering these questions. We have the burden, the law, and the load. And I think we'll see that the burden and the load have a relationship to this law. They're linked together. But there's even a glue that fits the three things together. So we're going to ask ourselves, what is it that we have to do to make sure that we're not thinking we're something when we're nothing? That glues all those things together. So this is how we're going to arrange it. And if you're taking notes, the first, first step is burden. So we're going on to talk about this verse 2. Reading verse 2 again, it says, Bear one another's burdens, and so, so doing, fulfill the law of Christ. This is not the only place where he mentions the law of Christ. And we actually just probably, a lot of commentators think, and I agree, that chapter 5 has already begun this topic when he started speaking about the fruit of the Spirit. We can look at Galatians 5 and we can look at Romans 13 to find out what this burden is. Uh, what this law of Christ is, but first we're at the burden. Burden relates to church discipline. The burden relates to church discipline. It's not the only thing, because it's very general, and it's not only the sin that's entangling someone that we have to help them out. It, he, he starts off with, there's, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. Restore him, not reprimand, but store, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. This is the fruit of the Spirit in chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit, gentleness. So the you who are spiritual, first of all, is that it's you who are of the Spirit. It may be that you're more mature than the one sinning or that you have a strength or you have overcome in what they are now being overcome by. But that's not, that's not the idea. The idea is that you have the Spirit. This is for every Christian. It's not just for the so-called super spiritual. This is for every Christian to bear one another's burden. It looks like burden can be weaknesses then. Weaknesses, not sinful weaknesses only, but especially including temptations and sin, because that's where Paul started. He started with temptation and sin, moves to the more general burdens that we are bearing with one another. And if you look at verse 6, 
One who is taught the word must share all good things with one who teaches. Some commenters think then that Paul is thinking about financial burdens even. So there's more than one kind of burden here. It could be a weakness, it could be a temptation, or it could be a sin. It could be a, a weakness of circumstance or finances. It could be a, a temptation that they're trying to resist, or it could be a sin that they've actually fallen in and they've been overtaken by it. They've been caught in a sin. An urgent issue. This is, a, I just mentioned a church discipline issue. Church discipline is an urgent issue. When we are sharing one another's temptation or sin burdens, that's something that's private, but it, it, it could be so extreme that it becomes public. And that's why I mentioned the church discipline issue. You'll see how that fits in in a little bit. Because we're supposed to help out. We're actually supposed to point it out. Yeah, I, I caught you in a sin. Can I help you out gently, restore you? That's church discipline at the smallest level, the, the one-to-one personal, brother-to-brother, sister-to-sister kind of level. It's an urgent issue because we're trying to restore someone. They're falling. And that's, sin is, is that bad. If you ever want to know how evil you are, just think about how you're supposed to be like Jesus. If you think just now, if you thought that was a burden, that's how evil you are. You think purity is a burden. That's how evil I am. I, I have trouble with purity. That, that's not, it shouldn't be that way if we were naturally good. But we're not. We're, we are made good and we're corrupt. And we are that corrupt that we think goodness is a burden. This burden is not goodness that Paul is talking about. It's weaknesses. It's sin. You know, things like purity is a strength. So we, we look at the fruit of the Spirit. Let's look at that now. Galatians 5, 22 to 26. We read it last week or a couple weeks ago. It was last week. So, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. There's the gentleness. Self-control. Against such things there is no law of Moses, Ten Commandments, or any other law in the world. There's no law against these things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. That's where we left off, the end of chapter 5, right before this this uh, wisdom and uh, commanding from Paul about, about being caught in transgression. He said, brothers. He's using that, it's, it's a very familiar term. He's already being gentle, but he's speaking about things that are very, very serious, very urgent. So conceitedness will fit into that. So you might want to underline that or put a little star in your notes. We're going to see how conceitedness fits into today's text, being conceited or arrogant, that we're provoking one another or envying one another. If we live by the Spirit, that means we are by faith through the Spirit living, then we ought to walk with Him. We seek what the Spirit seeks. We desire what the Spirit desires. 
One reason why some of you still struggle in the same sins is because you're going it alone. You're not sharing the burden with someone else. You're not even seeking out someone. You're maybe not even praying that someone might share it with you. Maybe you are. Then I'm not talking to you. But the Spirit is with you. At the very least, the Spirit is with you. And you're not alone. You also have a great cloud of witnesses that we're not able to see. So that we can shed every chain of sin that entangles. We, we must fight the sins that are entangling us. It's not something that we can just let live in our life and you know, live and let live and f- be forgiven. It's, it's not the way of Christ. We, we need to seek help. The command is here. Bear one another's burdens. So we need to find help. And help is t- there to be found. In our church, we, we don't have a particular accountability group, at least not yet. Maybe you'd like to start one. But we do have friends. We do have phone numbers on the back. We have email addresses. You can reach out if you need to. And we have a small group time after the service where we talk personally about the sermon. So please join us in one of those small group times. Then you can get to know us. You may feel more comfortable sharing your burdens. This is a gospel issue. So the second thing, I said it was an urgent issue. It's also a gospel issue. Church discipline is a gospel issue. It's not a judgmental issue. That's where we get it mixed up all the time. We, we tend to judge people outside the church, as Ben said yesterday to me. We tend to judge people outside the church and let people inside the church just kind of alone. We, we got it backwards. We need to be judging people inside the church in a spirit of gentleness to restore each other and leave those outside the, of the church for God to judge. To bring them in, we need to bring them in, but it's not our business to judge those outside the church, says the apostle. It's, our, of course, our business to judge those inside the church because it's a gospel issue. And we see this in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. Jesus himself tells us to do this. So let's turn now to Matthew 18. If you will read along with me or read silently. It's Matthew 18, verses 10 through 19. We usually think it starts at 15. I think it starts at 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. 
And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. It's a church discipline issue is a gospel issue. We are snatching people out of the fire, as Jude says, the brother of Jesus. So if the 99 sheep and the stray is like the brother that sins against you and you're bringing him back in, then this is a mercy issue. It's not something where we're trying to do some kind of a courtroom justice in the church, although it resembles that because there's the witnesses. We're doing this not out of condemnation. It's a ministry of reconciliation. But it's also a grave issue. So this church discipline, this, this sharing burdens and, and restoring people gently, it's also a very grave issue. Because it could be to the extreme that that brother will not listen even to the church. Then what do we do? Do we just keep him in the church? Because we're generous and we're merciful? No, even Jesus says, remove him. Let him be like a Gentile or a tax collector, not a church member. Why does he do this? This is the last resort. The last resort of mercy to, to pull someone in by letting them have their way and seeing how ruinous that way is. It's a grave issue, and we see it happening with Paul in other places where he's writing that he is handing people over to Satan because they're not repentant. Handing people over to Satan? Why? For, for the ruin of their flesh or for, the, for them to learn not to blaspheme is what it says. Because it's a grave issue, it's life or death. And we need to let people know the difference between us and them. Saved and not saved. That's of utmost importance. If, if they think everyone's saved, then they are depending on the kindness of God. And the kindness of God is in Jesus Christ. They're missing it. They're presuming upon the kindness of God. And Paul says that they will be judged for. So we can't let that happen. See, there's no way out of this. We are obeying Jesus, or we're trying to please the world by not being judgmental and letting everybody stay. And we can be proud of it, arrogant, like the Corinth, Corinthian church was arrogant about a sinful man in their church. It's not good, though. Maybe the world likes it. Jesus doesn't. But we can look at the other side. Well, maybe we can be discerning and try to follow, follow God, then the world will judge us for being judgmental. But did you know that the world would judge you either way because they are not your friend? Jesus told us that if you follow me, the world's your enemy. And this has happened in my own life. There's people, I've, I've seen people judge the church for being too lenient. They didn't remove the abuser from them. They didn't remove the sinful one. So now they have these courtroom things about sexual misconduct. But if they are removing someone from them, oh, now they're too judgmental. You can't win when it comes to 
trying to please the world. So why not just please Jesus? We have to keep it simple and follow Christ's way. He told us to do it this way. It's hard, but he told us to do it that way. And the whole reason for it is mercy, snatching people from the fire, restoring people in gentleness. That's the burden. The burden is our weaknesses or temptations to sin or actually sin itself. We need to help people where they can't do it themselves. They can't go alone. And the next thing is law of Christ. How does that relate to the law of Christ? Well, Christ bore our burdens in his body on the tree. He's bearing the burdens. Christ bears the burdens. And he is our example by doing it to the extremity that he did it. How extreme is it that he's innocent and yet he bears your sin to the cross? He's God incarnate, yet he humbled himself to the point of death. This is the kind of love that we need to see in the law of Christ. If we can, let's read 1 Peter chapter 2 to see a little bit about how Christ is our example. And in that way, in that way, he's a law. 1 Peter 2, 21 to 24. 1 Peter 2, 21 to 24 says, For to, for to this you have been called. This is what you have been called to. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Wow. Uh, we could just make that a memory verse next time after the Beatitudes are done. I think that'll get us a long way. So well, let's talk about what the law of Christ is and what it is not, because this is a term that's getting twisted all over the place. The law of Christ is not a replacement law. I mean, some people think that here's Old Testament law of Moses, and now here's Jesus, a better lawgiver, and replace. Whoop. But who is it that gave the law to Moses? It's not the law of Moses because Mo Moses wrote it. It's the law of Moses because Moses is the mediator of that covenant. The law was written by God by the finger of God and given to Moses. That's the Ten Commandments that, that represent the whole law of the Old Covenant there. So it's not a replacement because God wrote it. And Jesus himself says in, in uh, Matthew 22, 36 to 40, that love is what the law of Moses was grounded upon. So the law of Christ is something that came first, and it has been that way. You can think of it in terms of the prophets, too. If you, if you just take my lead on this and try to find it this way, I have not found the prophets to accuse foreign nations 
of violating the Sabbath, or any of the festivals, or food laws, or circumcision laws. But they, they have frequently been accused of murder, violence, sexual impurity, and other kinds of immoral acts. They are held to that account even though they didn't get the law of Moses because that's in our nature to know something about love and something about how not to treat even your enemy. I, I, I think that we can find the, the consistency there between the old covenant and the new covenant. It's not a replacement law, but it's not situation ethics either. Joseph Fletcher, a while ago, wrote a book that recognized Jesus' statement that love is the law. Love is the greatest commandment. So then he decided that all ethical situations can be resolved by how you think the loving thing would be to do is that thing. So whatever you think is the loving thing to do is the right thing to do. This doesn't fit, though, the way that God thinks about love. A while ago, we just saw that Jesus is the standard by the way he loves. That's how we know love, that he loved us first. So it's not as simple as saying, oh, just do the loving thing, and that's always the right thing. Because what you think the loving thing is and what God thinks the loving thing is are not always the same thing. The third thing is it's not a new law. I've already kind of hinted at that. So it's not a new law. Even though Jesus says, a new commandment I give you. We'll have to find out what's the newness in that commandment then. Let's look at John 13, 34. If we see John 13, 34. I have a house rule. When we remember a verse, you know, pretty well, and we talk about it, we should probably check that verse exactly, like look it up at that moment. Often we get in the habit of talking about verses we think we know pretty well, and we'll opine about them without actually hitting what the verse is actually saying. So if we actually read the verse, we'll see what the newness is in this commandment. It's John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Don't stop there. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. So that's the love we should give, and that's why it's a new commandment. It's new in that we get to see how Jesus loves us now. It's new in that Christ stands between us and the law in the gospel. But it's not new that God said, love your neighbor or love him. That's not new. That was old covenant law. The continuity, so it's not... It's not a replacement law, but it is a, there is a continuity between the old and the new. The, there's that higher sense, the, the older law that Sinai was grounded on, and that is love. Augustine, Augustine says the law of Christ means the law of love. And he's finding that by looking in Romans and looking um, in Galatians 5. And he also adds that whether or not it's the Sinai law or the New Testament, you can twist the words to make the law into slavery. Or you can be a saint that's set free by the very same thing. The very same words that were given at Sinai could be freedom for you, and you could write Psalm 119. Or 
it could be slavery for you, and you could be reading Romans. We can twist the words, and we'll be trapped by them, and be Judaizers in the New Testament just as well as we can be with the Old Testament. It's new in that it's a, it's a, a law that eclipses the old law. Not that it replaces it. It doesn't do away with it. It's actually using the Old Testament. And we see that. I said in Romans. Let's go look, look at Romans 13. Where Paul himself is using the Ten Commandments when he's speaking about this law of Christ. So if we look at Romans 13, verse 9. Starting at verse 9. No, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Very same thing he says in Galatians 5 about love. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. This is the law of Christ that we ought to be still obeying. Not to find salvation. But because we're saved, we are learning to love. We are set free from the idea that sin is, sin is freedom and purity and love is the burden. We've, we've been corrected by the Holy Spirit living in us. So I said it's not a replacement law. There is a continuity. It's not situation ethics. It's the law to love based on how God is the standard. Where do I find that? 1 John 4, 7 through 11. And I said Matthews twenty-two forty, where these two depend. Jesus says, the two, love neighbor and love God, on all the law and the prophets depend on those two. He says it that way. But if we look at 1 John 4, because this is a very favorite of many people, to say God is love. 1 John 4, 7 through 11. What does it mean, God is love? It's not that we can just love however we feel like love is, and then we're on God's side. It's very clearly in relationship to the gospel. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. A lot of, a lot of people like to stop right there. Verse 9 says, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a big word. It means the satisfaction of the wrath of God, the right wrath of God for the, for the judgment of our sins. So he is the satisfaction that satisfied the wrath of God. He took our sins, and that is love. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's the law of Christ, that we are loving like God because we've been set free to love by God. Uh, if not, I, I was going to ask the question, but I feel like I've already answered the question, so maybe I'll just skip that. If, Many people will say, if it's not Sinai law that the, the Christians should follow, then, then what is the standard for holy living? Right? It, 
the law of Christ equals love like Christ. So we don't follow all of the law of Moses as Christians. It's clear. Circumcision's off the, off the map there. Even when we're walking in the Spirit, we're not doing that. In fact, we, we refuse to do those things. But we follow all the law of Christ, who became to us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that why? No one would boast. No one would be conceited. No one would think they were something when they were nothing. Let's look at load now. If we look at load, we see that this is not a contradiction that I, I started mentioning at the beginning. We even see that it's a different word. Some translations in English use the same word, burden and burden. That's okay, actually, because the, these two words that are in Greek have the same meaning, basically. He, just like load and burden can be used interchangeably in English. It's like that in Greek. So it's easy to see why someone would translate it just with the same word. But uh, if we use different words, we can kind of see that he's using a different meaning for each word. So Jerome himself, a long, long time ago, a man named Jerome in the church also pointed this out. He's not the only one, but I wanted to show that we're, we're not the first ones today to look at this and go, what? Why is this? Looks like a contradiction in the same paragraph. It's to make a point. It's different but similar. So it makes us think. The first time I read this, it, it made me think, like, what does he mean? That's why he does it. So you ask that question. We also see the word boast, and we start to wonder, uh, Paul, your, your theology, what's going on here? You got laws, and you got justification by faith, you got load and burden, you got, you got boast, but you said boast in Christ alone. Uh, you know, this, this passage can really cause you a headache if you're you know, a perfectionist or something. But what he has in mind is judgment day. And that might be surprising to some of you. But load is the, the load of our responsibility. Individually, we will be judged by what we have done right and wrong. Every deed according to it, what, it, what it's worth. Even every careless word that we speak, Jesus says, uh, will be judged. Judgment day is in view, and we know this because we can see it just a little further in verse 7. Chapter 6. Galatians 6, verse 7. It says, Do not be deceived. The second time. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Sowing and reaping is, is judgment language. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. You don't talk about eternal life unless you're thinking about judgment when it comes to sowing and reaping. So when he says each one will bear his own load, in the future tense, each one will bear his own load. We're thinking about the judgment here. It's not about weaknesses, sins, and temptations. It's a different kind of burden. So judgment day is in view, and each will carry their own load before the judgment seat of Christ. Your relationships, your parents' faith, your actions, of, the actions of your proselytes, that will not count to save you. Even if it was teaching the word to change the world, that you may change the world. It, it's not what saves you. 
It's Christ alone that saves you. So we can boast in Christ alone. Even though Paul is trying to tell you, watch out that your reason to boast is in yourself. it, It could be ironic language, but it doesn't need to be. Because he's speaking to the Galatians who are fighting about the law, and we're boasting about, look, we're doing this law. And there's even further in chapter 6, we'll see that the, the real troublemakers are saying, we made those guys circumcised, so look how good we are. We are changing the world for God. That's not working. We also don't want to deceive ourselves by boasting in our achievements, by comparing ourselves with others. Also what the Galatian Judaizers were doing. They're comparing themselves with others. Isn't it popular today that we compare ourselves with Hitler? (laughs) We compare ourselves with neighbors, or we compare ourselves with Hitler and Stalin and think, I'm pretty good, not that bad. That's deceiving yourself. Do not deceive yourself and think you are something when you're nothing. If we are standing in our own works before God on the judgment day, we have nothing. And that's what he means by you are nothing. He doesn't mean you're insignificant. He doesn't mean that you have no dignity as a human because we are made in the image of God. He means that you have nothing in your hands. So thinking something when you are nothing is the arrogance that's causing them to be conceited and they're envying one another, they're provoking one another. But it's the standard of Christ that we're compared with, not Hitler. It's the standard of who he did and how he loved. But isn't it good then that he's the savior? Even though there's no other savior, the one who judges us can save us. We can just run. We can run to the judge. He bore all of your burden of sin on the cross. If you believe in him, you have had your burden paid for. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. So take that yoke upon you because he is rest for your souls. That's his promise, not mine. If we have the humility to believe Christ, if we have the humility not to judge the Bible and think that I know better than the Bible, that is thinking you're something when you're nothing. If we have the humility to believe the Bible, then you have rest for your souls. If you think, if, if you don't deceive yourselves, then you're not risking temptation, too. In, in verse 2, it says, watch out that you, lest you too be tempted. Or verse 1. That's the same conceit. That's, that we think we're so spiritual to help someone else, and we don't even think we might actually fall to that same temptation. So if we are humble, That is the glue that's holding the burden, the law, and the load together in this paragraph. We have the humility of Christ by not thinking that we are something, even if we are something. We don't think we are something. We think that others are more important than ourselves. We seek the good of others before our own. The load is a serious weight of sin that was taken from us at the cross. The mercy that you should that you receive should remind you to have mercy. Just as the Old Testament people had the same command to them. You were slaves once in Egypt. So treat the foreigner likewise, appropriately, not like a slave. You have been shown mercy. So show mercy. As for your own duty, as for your own load, the word 
says that Jesus is, is your strength and that you should cast off every weight of sin. I'll, I'll finish up with a word that I saw on Ligonier.com. I think it's Sproul himself, it's R.C. Sproul, but it doesn't say his name. He says this, I think it's so, it's so fitting. In our, quote, in our increasingly isolated lives here in the West, it is hard for us to form relationships that open up opportunities for us to bear the burdens of others. We must therefore make a special effort to get to know people in our churches well so that we can bear their burdens and so that they can bear ours. Is there a burden that you can help shoulder this day? Then go lighten someone's load. Is there a weight that you're carrying that you can share? Then go and tell of your need. End quote. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you bring us together. You be the glue that weaves our community together and holds it together. We know that we're not alone in this struggle of circumstance, of weaknesses, weaknesses that are not any sin at all, or temptation that's not sin, but we are struggling against it. And help us even to resist that sin that we keep falling into. Let us not leave our sins secret so that we keep doing it with impunity. Let's expose the darkness to a brother or to a sister so that we are not alone. Lord, help us to have the humility to know that we don't have that strength in ourselves to combat the forces of darkness, to combat Satan, to combat our own we, our own sinful failures. We tempt ourselves. Lord, thank you so much for the rest that you are, that you promise us that you are. And help us to grow in that rest more and more this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>